Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you caused all Scripture to be written for our learning, to inform our faith, to reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. Now grant, O Lord, we pray, that we may hear the words we read in such a way to remember and learn and receive them implanted. May we hide them in our hearts. May we hear them with joy. And by the patience and comfort we hear of in your holy word that you give us, may we embrace and hold fast to our confession of the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we believe the Bible is the inerrant and true word of the living God, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. We will read first from prophet Isaiah chapter 62. <clears throat> These are the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 1 through 12, found on page 789, if you're using your pew Bible there. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to your enemy. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it and in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, 
your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Second reading from the writing of John the Apostle, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And we're going to read from chapter 21, and it's verses 1 through 14. And this is on page 300, 1300, excuse me, 1326 of your pew Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ to John, starting at verse 1 of chapter 21 through verse 14. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and the gates and at the gates twelve angels and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates and the south three gates and on the west three gates and the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb may God and only God add meaning understanding, and blessing to the reading and especially the hearing of his word this morning. Amen. I recently had a very um, interesting privilege of, of uh, presiding over a wedding. Um, always um, something of a, a, a challenge, a, 
folks uh, who come for weddings are are usually uh, are there for the, the, the to, to witness the event and not so much to hear God's word. Um, but they heard both uh, and saw both at the last one I presided at. And every wedding I've ever observed, it's, it's almost the same kind of thing. It follows the same pattern, really. Um, the, the groom is up with the minister. I, I guess they put the groom and the minister up there so the groom doesn't feel, you know, he's anchored to the, to the minister. He won't go anywhere if he gets any cold feet or something. But uh, uh, this particular time, um, he was waiting in, in, in very great anticipation for his bride to come home. You know, the doors in the back of the church open, they both open, and in comes the, uh, the bride. Everybody stands up and turns and looks as this woman comes in her finery. I mean, there, there does, there, you don't get more dolled up than for a wedding, right? With your dress and your makeup and your hair and the baby's breath in the hair and all the other flowers I don't have any idea about because I'm a man, and weddings are not my best uh, expertise. I'm more conduct them than uh, coordinate them. The bride coming in, she was pretty spectacular. She had a great dress, and the groom started fidgeting, because he is unique among all who are watching. Um, he will soon take this woman to be his, his lawfully wedded wife, and he will promise to love her and to uh, join with her in a lifetime commitment, a covenant known as marriage, and he is uh, he's doing that before witnesses. And if the couple has met with any other minister uh, prior to counseling, uh, he has likely told them what I told them, that this thing that they're about to enter into is, is marvelous in itself, of course, but it is really patterned on a greater reality, a greater uh, truth, a profound mystery, patterned after the perfect union between Christ and his bride, the church. We read about that in Revelation 21, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. If you were paying attention to the first reading, you saw it. If you heard the second reading, you say, this goes together. This is kind of talking about the same thing. That God is promising to take his people unto him, to, to make them his bride and to make them his holy people. He promises to do that. And in this passage, the church, the glory of the church is uh, perfect and ready for the bridegroom, Christ, to take her forever. Every Christian wedding is a foretaste of that underlying reality. But the reality and the analogy pretty much stop there, don't they? There's a really significant difference between a human wedding, and the mystery of Christ and the church, isn't there? In our culture, we have this, um, there's so many superstitions with weddings, I'm amazed with it, even, even well, some that make its way into the church itself. Um, typically, we don't let the bridegroom have any eyes on the bride prior to that time when the door is open. In fact, getting her ready for that day is the least of his duties. He doesn't do anything, in fact. Uh, around the bride are all these uh, bride attendants, um, making sure her makeup's right and all the other things. In fact, the radiant glory of the uh, human bride is all due to human action and human work. The radiant glory of the bride of Christ, the church, 
the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem, is completely the work of the bridegroom. In fact, the bride does nothing to prepare herself, for it is completely Christ's work to prepare his bride for himself. He found her sinful. He found her defiled. He found her made ugly and dirty and fit for the pile of garbage through her rebellion. In reality, he found her dead in her trespasses and sins. Destined for that very same lake of fire which Revelation talks about. And it is the, it is the same Jesus Christ who died on the cross who is speaking here in Isaiah 62 saying, I will not keep silent for the sake of Zion. He redeemed the bride, each and every one of those in her, in fact, by his own blood on the cross, and he raised her from the dead, having been united to her by the Holy Spirit, uniting both uh, the church and he in one mystical union, which is a mystery to us. For if we have been united to him in his death, we are also to be united in him in his resurrection. He washed her with water through the word in order that he might present her perfect and blameless, the glorious bride. And he did not do it begrudgingly. He did it because he was delighted to do it. He accomplished the only righteousness that we need. In fact, the only, the only righteousness that pleases God through his cross and resurrection, also one for us who are his the only salvation we will ever need. There is nothing of the bride's work in any of this except to bring to the transaction, as Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing you contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But Christ has done the necessary thing, has he not? In bringing near, who were far away, those who are his, through the blood of his cross and the glory of his resurrection and the glorious ascension to the, to the right hand of the Father where he now even is this time making intercession for us. Through the years, Christ has been gracious and passionately preparing his bride for this wedding day spoken of in the book of the Revelation. Every bit of her glory on that day, which we have yet to see, every glorious and shining thing that the church will be, everything has been worked by him through his Holy Spirit and the Word, and there is nothing of the work of man in the glory of the church. And when all the work is finished, and when everything is done, he will descend from heaven, and she will descend from heaven with him, coming down as God's perfected work, and when the new heaven and the new earth finally come, they will shine with God's glory. All of those created things that the new trees, the new fields, the new everything, they will shine with the glory. But the one thing in the created order that will have the most glory is the bride herself. For she will truly be reflecting the glory of Christ perfectly as she does so imperfectly now. Nothing in that new creation that is created will have more glory than the bride of Christ. That's our purpose this morning. We want to understand the unceasing passion and zeal 
that drove Christ in this, that he has for his perfection, uh, for his bride's perfection, for Zion's perfection. We know this by many different letters, many different words. Uh, it is the new Jerusalem. It is the covenant people of God. It is the elect. It is the, it is the chosen in Christ before the foundation in the world. It is the redeemed from every nation. It is the Christian, the true people of God. What's more, uh, we're also going to do this and uh, 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 learn in Isaiah's passage here uh, how Christ's passion is also not to be by itself, but involves those in the church in his work. He will post watchmen to pray without rest for Zion. He will uh, direct them to give God no rest in this prayer until Zion be a, a praise among the nations. This zeal or passion, and I'm not talking about the, the passion like the movie, The Passion of Christ. I'm talking about that which is his love, his driving love, his zeal, and, and, and tempered also with his mercy and passion toward us as Christ calls for us to join with him in this work which he has appointed to us until his bride is perfected. This is all in the mind of Christ, this great zeal or passion. And so Isaiah 62 is really a four-part description of this passion. And it is, explains, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. There are four, four displays of this passion. The first is the desire of the Messiah for the glory of passion, for the glory of Zion, excuse me. As you look at verse 1 of chapter 62 in Isaiah, you notice that there is a statement. Let me ask you a question. Uh, if you were going to ask that, that there be a statement put on your tombstone, an epitaph, if you will, what would it be? Um, you know, as, as I have gone through this uh, particular passage several times, I, I'm coming more and more to um, coming alongside the idea that it is for Zion's sake that a Christian must live. Because Zion encompasses the whole idea of all that Christ has done for us and in us, uh, in his cross and in his resurrection. It, it encompasses everything having to do with the, the whole intervention into history of the world. It has everything to do with deciding who is Lord of everything. It has everything to do about asserting that God is Lord of history, Lord of life, creator, sustainer, self, uh, savior. It all comes down to this. For Zion's sake, um, I would like. Uh, now, I, I uh, some of you may know that I'm, I'm a retired um, Army chaplain. Uh, I served 33 years, and some of those times were in uh, the last eight years or so. I served in the Pentagon, funny building with five sides that all point in different directions and have no common sense. It's, it's a building surrounded by common sense, right? So, in 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 the in the cemetery, which is near there, often. Um, chaplains would have to do funerals in there, and so it's a, it's a very intimidating situation. We're not allowed to put epitaphs on our, our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and others who are in the cemeteries of our, uh, the national cemeteries of our country. Um, but if we were, um, we would want uh, to express, express ourselves in a way that um, would give glory to Christ. I, um, I pastored a church in rural South Dakota, and I would go through the cemetery kind of saying, well, I wish we could put some of the epitaphs in this cemetery on the cemeteries we have 
in our national cemetery. One of them uh, was a, a quote um, of uh, Isaiah 62 for Zion's sake. These old saints from many years ago, uh, that um, over 80 years ago had died. They had they had chosen that word, those words, to be on their tombstone. And I wondered. Is that just a thing that they did, or do they really live a life for Zion's sake, for Zion's glory? You know, that ought to be our understanding of what is here, because that is the very desire of the Messiah. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time convincing you that it is God, that it is Jesus Christ, this particular passage speaks about. This is the fifth gospel, after all, the book of Isaiah. Jesus' absolute passion for the, the salvation of his people, like a torch that is burning, like a, a righteousness that goes before like righteousness, that's what he wants for his people. Now, there is no understanding that apart from what he did for his people. What he wants for his people, he also did for his people. He left nothing up to us to do ourselves. Christ will not keep silent for Zion because his, not, his bride is not perfect until that day comes when he will present her without spot or blemish. So there's still a lot of work to be done in Zion. There's still a lot of perfecting to happen. Uh, we are challenged by these words to be as passionate for the consummation of his shining forth salvation as he is because it drove him to the cross. And having died for the sins of his people, having died on the cross, assuming the sin that we have committed, he has also imputed righteousness to all who believe in him. Calling upon Christ now in this moment is the way that we lay hold of this. Christ has accomplished salvation perfectly, he did so because he loved his people. And though he ought not to love us, because we, by nature, are rebellious before him. We're, we're like those folks in that, in that, that lake of fire. We, we, by nature, do not want to hear of our sin. We do not want to hear of our trouble that we have. We want to think everything's all right. And what Christ says is, guess what? Everything is not all right, but I will take responsibility for what is your salvation. And there shall be no human mistakes in it. For I, the Lord, am perfect. As he commands us, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we are called to be as passionate as Jesus is, as his children, to do what he loves, to love also how he loves, and to, be, and to be passionate for his people whom he loves. So how does this love, this passion, show itself? Well, it, it shows itself in how Christ rules over all the nations and all over all the people. Look in verses 2 through 5, how the glory of Zion is shown to the nations. First, we see that the desire of the Messiah is for the glory of Zion. That is this passion displayed in how he wants, wants the glory of Zion to be shown. And then he has another passion, and that is he goes ahead and he shows that glory to the whole nation. Look at what he does here in verses 2 through 5. 
The immediate and partial fulfillment of this passage is that, uh, that the people of Israel would come back from Babylon to their, uh, from their captivity to the restoration of Jerusalem. But you read these words that they will have a new name by the mouth of God that he will designate. They will have a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your Lord. It will no longer be said for you, you're forsaken, you're desolate. But you are now Hephzibah, you're Beulah, you're, you're del his delight is in you, and Mary. These things are much more than a simple restoration of the possession of a piece of land in Palestine. No, the restoration Ezra and Nehemiah speak of, it's more deep than that. The full fulfillment of this chapter, these words, is on a much grander scale. It's about the glory of the whole of the people of God throughout all of history. He's speaking of the all of redemptive history as he does this. The church grows in holiness. Nations will see this holiness and be forced to acknowledge Christ even if it is only on the last day and begrudgingly. Now, there's a greater thing here. Zion and their people are ever increasing. The nations and their kings will see the transformation of these people come to Christ. It doesn't say everyone in the world is going to come to Christ. It doesn't say even that most people in the, in the world would come to Christ. It says, though, from every nation, there will be those who come to Christ despite what the king of that nation is and what he believes or she believes or he would see. The glory of the spiritual Zion, even while spiritual Zion is being built, will be attractive to every elect person, every elect nation, every elect person in the world will be converted by the Holy Spirit's ministry. Zion will be populated more and more and she will be to the fullness that God has willed and allocated as an inheritance to the Son who now reigns in glory as well. Not only this, the desire of the Messiah for the glory of Zion, the glory of Zion is also shown to the nations also he involves his people in this very work. In verses 6 through 9, he says, there are watchmen appointed for the glory of Zion. And so as he will not be silent, so we ought not be silent. Picking up in verse 6, this reading, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silence. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm. The Lord posts watchmen on Jerusalem's walls to accomplish the perfection of his bride. Like Jesus, day and night they are never to keep silent. Their lives are to be for the sake of Zion lives. Are you living a for-the-sake-of-Zion life? The, the mission here that Jesus gives us, the mission that God gives us through his word, through his servant Isaiah, the prophet is to be about the mission of intercession for his Zion above all else. They're commanded to remind the Lord that Zion is yet incomplete, that she is needy, that there is still work yet to be done to ask the Lord of the harvest to send labors into the harvest, to give themselves no rest 
until they see that God is glorified in this bride, this new Jerusalem, this, this elect people. Until this is the praise of all the earth, verse 7. The work of relentless intercession for the sake of Zion, it doesn't occur only when things are good. It occurs in this relentless also opposition, which we seem to see everywhere we turn in today's world. To the building of the church, it is one of the most difficult tasks undertaken by God's people. The duty, the duty of every Christian to be a watchman in prayer for the sake of Zion is not assigned to a specific group of believers. It's not assigned to the elders or the deacons or, or the ministers in the church. Not to the older people or to the younger people. Not to the smart. Not to the good-looking. Not to... Uh, anyone particular. It is everyone's duty. And in fact, God tests his people in this very thing, does he not? He tests his people for the glory of the church seems at, at times, and let's admit it, it seems at times to be faded and dim. The enemies of the church seem to be overwhelming against us. They seem to be more powerful. They seem to be better organized, better funded. Uh, possessing more resources. The work of the church, as we look at it from human terms, seems so immense to us as to be impossible. You're just getting a glimpse of what the apostles must have felt that Ascension Thursday when Jesus left and left them with nothing but the promises he gave them. The Holy Spirit had not yet come to them. The Holy Spirit had not yet given them the boldness and favor that he uh, would give them. There they were. And what did they have to preach? What do we have to preach but a crucified Savior? A man who endured shame in this world. Who by all human terms, in fact, has no reason to claim glory. But we know because of what the Word says that the very opposite is true. We're prone to say, you know, when we look at these promises, the salvation is not going forth like a burning torch, is it? The nations don't see God in the human goings-on. Isaiah's heart, as he looks at it, is broken for the people of his generation. And we might say the same for ours. If we look at our generation, we might also say that. Then there's the problem we, we are constantly confronted with in this work of being a watchman, that our heart is sometimes wandering. We don't always want to be relentlessly committed because we've got things to do. We've got pleasures to do. So we'll give God a day. We'll give God an hour. We'll give God a few minutes once in a while during our day. But is there anything at all which goes on in this world which is not under His sovereign command his lordship, his power? Is there anything created which is not known by him and which will not one day declaim with the rest of the creation that the Lord is Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father? Is there a time in your day when you yourself can give to nothing but your own desires? Or do we God need to look for a new set of people to be his watchman. Will you be the watchman today? Will you cry for the glory and the sake of Zion in your life with your words, your deeds, 
with your very actions, everything that you have with your passion. And so when they lay your body in the grave, will you be able to justly have on your tombstone for Zion's sake? He lived, she lived. That's exactly what God expects. That's exactly what we ought to be about. It ought to be our prayer every day just to do that very thing. It's completely understandable to be rational about it, um, you know, to, to try to uh, divide our time between one place and the other, but, but the, the, the Zion's stakes kind of life demands that you just simply set aside everything that doesn't fit into that. That the vows you've made to Christ to serve Him, uh, that to, to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to be a faithful husband, a faithful bride, those, everything that doesn't fit into that, set it aside. For us to learn to give ourselves over to something as profound and as absolute as no rest until Zion is perfect in glory is an extreme view. You'll encounter problems if you commit to this. You'll encounter problems in such an extreme work living this way until the day you die, knowing that the work of Christ is never done until he returns and relieves us from it. But that's the point, you see. Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous call once for Christians uh, of his day in the 1700s to unite in prayer for revival. He says this, It is very apparent from the word of God that God often tries the faith and patience of his people. When they are crying to him for some great and important mercy, he tries them by withholding that mercy for a reason, uh, for a season. And not only so, but at first he may cause an increase of the dark appearances. Edwards goes on, And yet God, without fail, at last, prospers those who continually, urgently, in prayer and with all perseverance, will not let him go until he blesses. It is, what, it is the secret Jacob knew. It is the secret everyone who serves Christ knows. And that is that despite all appearances, despite all things we see and might be able to determine out of our own circumstances, that God causes all things to work for good to those who love Him, to those who serve Him. God, it seems, has been overcome by the prayer of people from time to time. It seems that those who live a kind of Zion-only kind of life are the ones who know the great secret of joy from day to day, no matter what occurs. I am um, humbled when I read and, and, and see of instances of this. I, I uh, uh, saw a video recently of a man who has lost his wife. Um, one of his boys was killed. Uh, two others in a, in a refugee camp in, in Sudan. Um, and uh, he got up to uh, address a, a bunch of American uh, pastors um, in one of the Reformed denominations. He gets up and he says, of all these things, the one thing he wanted to talk about, he says, I would like to talk to you about the goodness of God. That's a man who lives a Zion-only kind of life. He knows that God has him in the palm of his hand, that he is in the grip of the one 
who has sought him and bought him with the blood of Christ. Despite these overwhelming challenges, reasons for disappointment and setbacks, God has sworn by his right hand and his strong arm to make Zion prosperous. Not in the worldly um, Joel Osteen kind of prosperous. That's a lie. The, the kind of prosperous we're talking about is the kind of effulgent grace that comes by what God does in our lives. He has set out to prove and show through Christ how much he can love and bless ruined people through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he set out to do this? He is graciously, um, I might pause to say, God does not use people because they're competent. He doesn't use people because um, they um, have any kind of thing in them. He uses them because he is gracious to do so. And he has called us to declare to the people of the world that the salvation of Christ is the only way. Go through verse 12. Go verse 10. Um, so the desire of the, of the Messiah for the glory of Zion, the glory of Zion shown to the nations, and the watchman appointed for the glory of Zion, how is this then, this passion carried out by human beings? Through the great commission which builds the glory of Zion by God's Holy Spirit. Go through, he says. Go through the gates, verse 10. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard, a banner over the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought out a city not forsaken. In these last three verses of this passage, we find the language of highway construction. There's the old joke, right? Um, we have two seasons here in the Midwest. We have road construction and winter, right? Road construction is important. Uh, even more important when it's used here to describe how we may and we are building a highway, an unobstructed path to salvation by our labors in God's people. The redeemed of the Lord are urgently commanded here. Go out. Go out of the gates. Go out there. The image is clearly what uh, the exiles in Babylon would have heard at the time coming out of the city of destruction. All the redeemed of every nation on the earth will essentially have the same experience that the exiles had. Rescue from evil. Commanded to go out. Commanded to not participate not to participate in the sins of Babylon, to receive the plagues of Babylon, Revelation 18, right? to flee it, to flee, therefore, to the city of Zion along a prepared highway that is free of obstruction, that is direct and without delay. It is a highway that the redeemed are just as urgently commanded to build as they are on it, through worship, through mutual edification of each other, and through gospel witness in the world, as they travel toward Zion itself. Thus do previous generations of faithful Christians leave behind them a smooth highway for the spiritual descendants they leave 
to reach the place they're going to. Um, a very wise man um, recently, uh, we were discussing a question about uh, our seminary and why it exists and all that. And, um, I'm not here to promote that so much as I'm here to talk about what he said, which ought to be put a point on this whole business of living a Zion-only kind of life. He said, I, I'm here because I want to have some... I, 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 am, I am concerned over who is going to preach the gospel to my grandchildren. That's a man building a highway. That's a man understanding that someone has to come after him. That's a man understanding that, that what we ought to be about is understanding this not about today so much. It's about what will be. What will be by the, by the word of the Lord. This promise of Zion's consummation, which will eventually come, this end result is that God's holy people, the Lord's redeemed, who are Jesus' reward and recompense, they will be found who were previously sought. They will be overflowing in Zion, a city previously deserted, without anything in it worth having. It's hard, therefore, to see these words, lo, your salvation come, without speaking of anything other than the worldwide commission given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he ascended into heaven and leaving us the work of building this highway. All authority, he says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This passion that Jesus has, the Messiah has, for the glory of Zion, for I will not be silent, is shown in his desire for it. It's shown in the glory of Zion being shown to the nations by his hand. It's shown by the watchman he appoints to pray for Zion, and it's shown in the ministry of the preaching of the gospel, which we call the Great Commission throughout the history of the world. Christ's relentless passion for his people's perfection dominates his, this chapter we just read. It challenges every generation of Christians to join with him. Jesus will never, ever stop speaking his word into the hearts of his bride, the church. He will never relent from cleansing her with the washing of water and the word to present his bride to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless, Ephesians 5. The immediate application of this as members of this bride, this church, is to be holy ourselves. Like the Holy One that calls you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, 1 Peter 1, 15. The text of Isaiah 52 challenges us to love the bridegroom with an undivided love, to put away all idols, all worldly affections, to challenge us, it does, to be just as zealous for the holy, and this is the hard part because it has to do with your neighbor, to be just as zealous for the holiness of other Christians and just as joyous when you see it in them as you are in your own life. To be just as energetic for the work of the church as you are for the work of earning a living. In fact, they're inseparable. For all you do is to be done to the glory of God. 
It calls on mature Christians to, to build a road for the younger Christians, to disciple them and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And it calls for us to have a long view of the final perfection of the bride, knowing that, in fact, it's already accomplished in Christ, that our work is not in vain, that, in fact, we're working out of the success and the perfection of the one who had the, the passion to drive himself to the cross and give himself for his people. His sacrifice is available to all who call upon him in truth. To all who call upon him, if you know you are a sinner and you have not called upon Christ, what he has done is available all upon Christ. He has already accomplished this salvation. This chapter also commands us, and more like leaders than not, but it does speak to everyone, to diligently carry out our duty to be good watchmen in the church to watch for the enemies of Zion, to guard them, to oversee the doctrinal and practical issues of the church and do so with a zealousness and a love which um, honors Christ. And it clearly calls us to intercede in a relentless way uh, for the church's final glory. This is hard work for everyone. It's not easy and you will get weary when you pray this way. Finally, as we have seen, and if you've read Isaiah, you can notice time and time again, this chapter has, and this whole book has a clear missionary thrust. This is not for one select race of people in the world. It's for all of the peoples of the world. We should be traveling on the highway to Zion as we invite others to travel with us they may not look like us. They may not think like us right away, but that's okay. Because it is not we who perfect them, but the Word and the Spirit ministered honestly, unapologetically, and directly to their hearts. Make the highway smooth. No impediment of your own human design. And by the clear preaching and sharing of Christ and His grace, the cross and the resurrection, the full gospel message of repentance and faith by that clear preaching and living by the holy pattern of Christ, we shall, we shall be serving him in faithfulness and in truth. May that be true in each and every one of your hearts this morning by his grace and his grace alone. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we do give you thanks and praise for how you have brought us who were far from you, near by the blood of Christ. How you continue to, through your sovereign right hand of power and grace and, and mercy, empower uh, the, the words we speak because they are yours. We pray, O oh Lord, that in these things we not be found wanting, but, Lord, that if we... Be, be found to rely on our own strength. May we repent of such a sin. May we instead, O Lord, call upon you and follow you. May we, O Lord, have the passion of Christ in our hearts. May we love what he loves. And Jesus, 
We praise you for your intercession and your sending of the Holy Spirit along with the Father into our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, that we may keep in step with your Spirit and glorify you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his glory alone.